It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio KCAW Sitka. It's Friday, December 2nd. I'm Erin Fulton with Raven News. A couple of Sitka residents who were fishing for halibut last month noticed an unusual feature on their depth sounder, what appeared to be an underwater volcano. Experts who've seen the image say it's no cause for alarm, it's most likely a mud volcano, and it's not the only one near Sitka. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. Locals don't use rods and reels much to fish for halibut in Sitka. Rather, most set a subsistence skate, a long line baited with a dozen or more hooks that is laid right along the bottom from a slowly moving boat. Jason Schmidt was doing just this in November near the entrance to Nakwasina Sound, five miles north of Sitka. Schmidt was on deck, paying out the line. And then my friend who I was out fishing with was inside watching the depths on the sonar, and he noticed just a weird shape and called me in to look at it with him. And what was it? Well, I didn't know what it was when I first saw it, but it certainly looked like some things I had seen before. I think we both immediately saw the cone shape and the kind of trail coming out of it, uh, thinking that it could be an underwater volcano of sort. Had it been anyone else, this might have been an invitation to head for the hills. But Schmidt is the regional geoscience coordinator for the Klingit and Haida Central Council. She'd been in Sitka for what has been a very interesting year geologically for the region. Her first impulse was to try and find the feature again and then get on the phone. I'm aware of kind of the geologic context of Sitka and the surrounding islands, like, and spatially where the Queen Charlotte Fault is and where the Manajkum volcanic field is. And this location, we're all kind of just like not adding up with the story that I know about our geology here. And so, yeah, I just called the people who I knew had spent a lot of time thinking about the seafloor here. It's a classic example of what we have seen out on the fault down around uh, Dixon entrance. Dr. Gary Green is a marine geologist, emeritus professor at the Moss Landing Marine Lab, and a leading expert on the undersea geology of the Queen Charlotte Fault. These types of plumes that come out of this volcanic-like cone are associated with what what we call mud volcanoes. And they're not really active volcanoes where magma comes flowing out, but it's mainly fluids that uh, come up from depth and carry with it sulfide-rich gases and what have you. Green has done sonar studies of the Queen Charlotte Fault that have produced images that are surprisingly similar to what Schmidt and her fishing partner saw on their depth sounder. The term mud volcano tends to conjure up thoughts of destruction, but with a few exceptions, their only similarity to terrestrial volcanoes, like the nearby Mount Edgecombe, is their shape. If there's a better term, I'd love to use it, and right now I don't know about one. Dr. Cheryl Cameron is a state geologist at the Alaska Volcano Observatory and another expert Jason Schmidt consulted. Cameron is from Sitka and is familiar with the depth sounders people use here while fishing. She hesitates to draw any conclusions from the image Schmidt captured, but admits that there are plenty of possibilities. A fish finder is looking for reflections within the water column. And so anything that has a density or a sound speed different from that of the rest of the water will cause a reflection. And so that, you know, reflector could be indicating a change in temperature or composition. It could be any kind of gas leaking out of the ground that would generate a plume with a different impedance and thus a reflection. So it could be CO2, it could be methane, it could be fluid with particulates in it. There are a lot of possible causes that are not related to volcanism. Nakwasina, where Schmidt was fishing, is not within the Mount Edgecombe volcanic field, but it's right next door. 
Edgecombe generated headlines last spring when an earthquake swarm signaled that magma was stirring beneath the long dormant crater. Subsequent radar studies showed that the flanks of the mountain had inflated by several inches over the last couple of years. Although the mud volcano is probably not volcanic, Gary Green says there's not enough information to rule out that it might be related to what's happening beneath Mount Edgecombe. It could very well be associated with that magma that's moving up into the cone. It could be that uh, the heat from that magma has uh, started a convection of warm water, hot waters that are now venting at that locality. The mud volcano is near a place called the Beehive. Everyone who's been to Sitka on the ferry passes just a stone's throw away. Jason Schmidt didn't catch any halibut on the cone, but that unhappy fact hasn't kept her away. Well, we keep going back again. My friend who is whose boat I was on has gone back to the same place to check again and again, and it's still a bump under the water. I still have so many questions and would like to go back with better instrumentation where you could really see, but I'll leave that to Gary and Cheryl to direct. Although Schmidt is a professional scientist, accidentally discovering an underwater mud volcano is a form of citizen science that is very useful to researchers. Cheryl Cameron welcomes any and all observations of geologic phenomenon at the Alaska Volcano Observatory. Gary Green is going a step further and is looking for research funding to go down and take a look at the mud volcano, or at least take its temperature. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. There were no fatalities within Alaska's commercial fishing fleets this year for only the second time on record. And as KRBD's Reagan Miller reports, the U.S. Coast Guard says the credit belongs to the fishermen themselves. For the first time since 2015, Alaska has gone a year without a commercial fishing death. The Coast Guard says in the 12-month period that ended September 30th, no one died falling overboard in an on-deck accident or on a sinking ship. Scott Wilwert is the Coast Guard's commercial fishing vessel safety coordinator. He says fatalities have been cut almost in half over the last decade. You know, from 1990 to 1999, we had uh, 210 what we classify as uh, operational commercial fishing fatalities in Alaska. And in the 10-year period from 2000 to 2009, that dropped uh, from 210 to 107. And then from 2010 to 2019, down to 62 Wilwert says there have been just 10 commercial fishing deaths in Alaska since 2020. So, yeah, we definitely are seeing a downward, a decreasing trend in, in the number of commercial uh, operational fatalities in the industry. But what exactly is causing that downward shift? Wilwert says it's a combination of changing fishery regulations and an industry culture focused on preventing accidents. I believe that, you know, the fishermen that, that, that I come in contact with and all our examiners come in contact with are, are much more safety conscious. They understand the risks, they take the preparations, um, you know, and, and that's a big piece of the puzzle. Wilwert says that's a sharp contrast to the 70s and 80s, when short openings encouraged captains to fish in an all-out sprint, sometimes sacrificing safety. The way that fishermen now in certain sectors are able to, um, to some extent, choose when they want to go out, maybe, uh, you know, maybe skip a weather window or look for a better weather window as opposed to the old derby days when, you know, back in the 70s and 80s when, uh, you know, overloading um, or deck loading with, with fish or overloading with gear because you only had four or six or eight days to, you know, to catch all the, the crab or the halibut or whatever. Wilwer emphasized how important it is for mariners to stay up to date on safety recommendations and equipment 
and to take part in the dockside exams offered by the Coast Guard before it's too late. The time to learn how to use any of that stuff is, is not at the moment of truth. Tracy Welch is the executive director of United Fishermen of Alaska. We're a big industry, but in a way we're a really small industry. Everybody knows somebody um, who knows somebody, right? And so those deaths um, are tragic. Welch says she also thinks things have changed over the last few decades when it comes to education. I think with the younger generation of fishermen coming in and moving towards more rationalized fisheries as opposed to the derby-style fisheries, it's um, given people a chance to focus on safety and making sure that people make it home at the end of the day. Welch says she hopes the trend continues. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. Federal safety investigators are calling for new, more restrictive regulations on flight seeing tours in the Ketchikan area after a series of crashes. The National Transportation Safety Board says previous approaches focused on voluntary compliance have proven ineffective at addressing the unique hazards of flying in the area. Eric Stone reports. The agency's 20-page report calls on the Federal Aviation Administration to impose specific regulations for Ketchikan air tours above and beyond what's normally required. The NTSB says it's looking to prevent pilots from being caught in clouds unexpectedly without the equipment necessary to navigate them. Large commercial airliners carry specialized instruments that allow them to fly in low visibility conditions, but small flight-seeing planes typically operate under so-called visual flight rules. That is, they rely on what pilots can see out the window. The report highlights seven fatal flight seeing crashes in the Ketchikan area since 2007 that killed a total of 31 people and injured another 13. Three of those crashes involved flying into poor weather conditions and crashing into terrain, including the most recent crash in Misty Fjords National Monument Wilderness last year. Those three crashes resulted in 20 deaths. Current regulations on air tours require visibility of at least two miles when clouds are less than 1,000 feet above the ground. Pilots must also fly at least 500 feet above ground level. But Ketchikan is more complex. NTSB Chair Jennifer Hammondy said in a news release that the area's fast-changing weather and mountainous terrain present, quote, unique but well-understood safety hazards. The report asks the FAA to work with the National Weather Service to come up with more conservative weather standards for flight-seeing tours in Ketchikan and require specialized training. The board also asks the FAA to require air tour operators to comply with a 2009 agreement that standardizes tour routes, provides alternate flight paths on poor weather days, and encourages pilots to relay poor conditions. That agreement is voluntary, and even though the air carrier involved in last year's crash had signed on, the pilot was not following the designated route at the time of the crash, according to the NTSB. A ProPublica report last year highlighted that Alaska makes up a growing share of the country's crashes involving small commercial aircraft. The NTSB says specific regulations issued for other high-risk locales like the Grand Canyon and Hawaii have improved flight seeing safety. The NTSB investigates crashes but doesn't have the power to issue binding rules. That's why it's calling on the FAA to impose new regulations. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Eric Stone. I'm Erin Fulton. This has been Raven News.